copy of God's Word, let's turn together to Genesis chapter 41. Genesis chapter 41. Last time we were looking at chapters 39 and 40, and we saw how it was that God was with us as things go from bad to worse. This morning we see the other side of the way God works in our lives, that God's with us as we go from rags to riches. And this movement of humiliation and exaltation, it is the movement of the Christian life because ultimately it's the pattern that's been set for us by our Lord Jesus Christ, a pattern that he calls us into. But in order to, to see this and have it actually mean something for us, to, to move from our heads to our hearts, we need the help of the Holy Spirit. Let's ask him to come, shall we? Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, we come to you as your people this morning, desiring to hear your word. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray, come. Open our eyes of faith that we might see glorious riches in this portion of your gospel. But Lord, not only see and hear, penetrate into our hearts so that we might be faithful followers of our great and glorious King. Grant us this grace, Lord, we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 45, uh, actually 55 verses, so we're going to read selective sections in this chapter. But we'll start in verse 1. Genesis 41, chapter 41, verse 1. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk and Behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there were none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me in the chief baker, put me and the chief baker in custody of the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream, and as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Now let's go down to verse 25. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. The seven good cows are seven ears, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. 
The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years. And the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them, there will arise seven years of famine. And all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land. And the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years and let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain under the Pharaoh of authority for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and as wise as you are. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. Now let's go down to verse 53. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end. And the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. For the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt, to Joseph, to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So Horatio Alger Jr. was a phenomenally successful and prolific 19th century author. Uh, essentially, all of his stories had the same basic plot. In fact, we've come to know them as Horatio Alger stories. And, and the basic plot of a Horatio Alger story went something like this. There was a teenage boy who was in poverty, but he was determined to make something out of himself. And so he worked incredibly hard. And he demonstrated sterling character and overcame such difficulties like um, recalcitrant overseers or abusive masters to whom they might be apprenticed. One day, the, the sterling character, hardworking teenage boy comes to the notice of a particularly wealthy or well-connected individual. And they see his desert and his worthiness. And so he sets him on, his, on a proper pathway, something that's actually worthy of his character. And he moves into incredible success and wealth and prosperity. As I say, almost every story uh, that goes along this line is called a Horatio Alger story. We know it better as a, as a rags to riches story, right? You've heard that phrase, rags to riches. He went from rags to riches. Well, that's where it came from. It's from Horatio Alger. You, you, you can recognize how much impact these stories have had on the way that you and I see the world. I mean, we love to celebrate those who come out of 
difficult circumstances or out of poverty who have good character, who have determination and grit and, and they gr have great success as a result. They're self-made men and self-made women and we celebrate them, don't we? Of course, as Christians we know there's no such thing as a self-made man. As Christians we know there's really no thing as a self-made woman. I mean, if we go from rags to riches, it, it wasn't simply our hard working or the breaks that we made for ourselves. As, as believers in Jesus Christ, we know God was with us. It was ultimately the grace of God from first to last. The same grace that is with us when things go from bad to worse is the same grace that's with us when we go from rags to riches. It's just as the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Yes, I worked harder than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. That's one of the things I think we learn from this section of Genesis Chapters 39 and 40 certainly chart how God is with us when we go from bad to worse and the worst things that can possibly happen to us happen to us. Yet God has not abandoned us. But this chapter shows us that God is with us just as he's with Joseph when we go from rags to riches. So that whether we experience humiliation or exaltation, it's not our doing ultimately. It's God's grace. It's the God who is with us and for us and ultimately in us. He's the one who is orchestrating the events of our lives. You certainly see that in Joseph's life as he goes from being forgotten to remembered. The very first words of chapter 41 recall to us exactly where Joseph is. It begins in verse 1 after two whole years. Two whole years. Who's marking that time? Well, that's, that's Joseph. Well, where is Joseph? Well, just recall what we've seen. He was the favored son of a powerful man. But he's gone from that favored status through slavery, through a trumped-up rape charge to prison, so that now he's forgotten. He's rotting in a foreign jail in Egypt as a political prisoner. And he's doing what he's been doing. He's, as we saw in chapter 40, he's been helping out in the jail. He's been caring for the prisoners. Have you ever wondered what Joseph was thinking as he's doing this? As you use your sacred imagination? As he's there in the jail and he's serving and he's had these amazing circumstances of this interpretation of the dream and it's happened just as he told the cupbearer and the baker. Remember he told the cupbearer, don't leave me here, I didn't do anything wrong. What is he doing as two whole years passed? Well, he's doing the same things. He's helping out in the jail. He's caring for the prisoners. Nothing that happens in that political jail is, goes on ex unless Joseph does it. What does it? What is he thinking about? Is he thinking about replaying the scenes from 13 years before when his brothers ripped the coat off of him, that symbol of authority coat that his father had given him, thrown him into the pit? Did he think about all... What could he have said differently that would have caused Judah to pay attention to him instead of selling him into slavery? Should he, have, should he have apologized? Should he have tried to do something to mitigate their hatred of him? What happened with Mrs. Potiphar? He was just minding his own business, trying to do good work for a good master. And he keeps replaying those scenes, seeing if he could have done something differently. Did he wonder about God and why God had put him here? 
Why has God let this happen to me? I thought because of the dreams I had 13 years before that he cared about me, that he was for me. Why am I here rotting in this jail in the pit? And as he's thinking about these things and mulling them over and going about his his chores, suddenly the doors of the jail fling open. And there's Pharaoh's servants and they're shouting out, where's Joseph? Hey, come on, man. We need you. Pharaoh's calling for you. He's had these dreams, these crazy dreams. He can't interpret them. Nobody can. We need you. You need to get a shave, shave your head, shave your beard, get on some clean clothes. We're going to see Pharaoh. We need you. Come on. How does that happen? How, How does it happen that Joseph goes from being utterly forgotten to suddenly being remembered? Well, we think it's Pharaoh's birthday. In chapter 40, verse 20, uh, three days after Joseph had interpreted the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker, uh, Moses had written there on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants. And he restores the cupbearer and he executes the baker. Chapter 41, verse 1 says, after two whole years, that's Moses' signal, that we've come full cycle, 730 days, exactly to the day, it's Pharaoh's birthday again. And on that night, he's had these dreams, strange dreams about fat cows and skinny cows and skinny cows eating fat cows, fat ears of corn, skinny ears of corn, skinny ears of corn eating fat ears of corn. What's this all about? He didn't know what they meant. And so he kills his chief advisors. And it's then that the cupbearer remembers, right? You see verse 9. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each dream having its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office and the, the baker was hanged. And it's at that point, at just the right point, that the cupbearer remembers. I'm, I'm sure there were great promises made, right? And Joseph tells the cupbearer, hey, remember me when you're out on the outside. I didn't do anything wrong. Oh, sure, Joseph, sure, I'll remember you. And immediately, he forgets. And there's no reason to bring it back to mind. He's successful. He's been restored. He's back in Pharaoh's good graces until the exact right moment. Was that chance? Was that coincidence? Was that good fortune? No. No, there's a larger purpose at work here. God is at work. That's why Joseph goes from being forgotten to being remembered. It's also why he goes from being silenced to speaking. Two years, Joseph's been in jail. He wasn't completely silenced. I'm sure he was talking to the prisoners. But in terms of this story, we don't really know what happened to Joseph in those two years between when the cupbearer leaves in chapter 41. They are dark ages, not to Joseph, but to us. For all intents and purposes, Joseph has been silenced to us. But now, now he's before Pharaoh listening to his dream, preparing to give the Lord's interpretation. And then finally, Joseph speaks, starting in verse 25. Verses 25 to 36 represent Joseph's longest speech 
in the story thus far. And as he speaks, he's, he's quick to give credit to God. He says in verse 25, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. The seven good cows are seven years. The seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years. And the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It's as I told Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he's about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them there will arise seven years of famine. And all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land and the plenty will be unknown in the land by the reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing has been fixed by God and God will shortly bring it to pass. And then he goes on with a plan. This is what Pharaoh ought to do. And as one writer observes, Joseph's speech shows him to be both clear-headed and decisive. Clear-headed about the interpretation necessary, but also decisive. He doesn't hold back. He shares exactly what the message that God has for Pharaoh and his advisors. His speech, he tells Pharaoh several things. First, he tells him that God gives the interpretations of the dreams, not me. Don't credit me, credit God. But then he tells him trouble's coming. Trouble is coming. And in fact, because of the doubling of the dream, God has said this thing's going to happen. The matter is fixed. But here's with the bad news. I have some good news. I have a plan. And this is what we ought to do. And so it's out of this obscurity, out of this period of silence, that Joseph gives Pharaoh a speech that will change human history, that will change redemptive history. Don't you see God is at work here? He was at work as Joseph moved from being forgotten to remembered. At work as, as he moved from being silenced to now he's speaking. But certainly he's at work in the final transformation. Going from being powerless to powerful. Because of course the shocker of the story. The unexpected twist is after Joseph gives the plan. Pharaoh says since God's shown you all this. There's no one as discerning and as wise as you. And so Joseph goes from prison to become prime minister. He goes from being powerless to incredibly powerful. It's the ultimate rags to riches story. And he will be invested with all the symbols of authority. He's given a chariot. He's given a signet ring that marks out the, the documents with a seal of authenticity. These come from Pharaoh's own hand, as it were. But he's also given a robe. A symbol of authority robe. I wonder as those robes were slipped over his shoulder if he thought back to when his father put the symbol of authority robe, the coat of many colors on Joseph and marked him out as his successor, as, as the overseer of his brothers and his flocks. Now Joseph has these robes placed on his shoulder and he's not simply overseeing a flock, he's overseeing all of Egypt at the right hand of Pharaoh. And then everyone... Everyone bows the knee to Joseph. Everyone confesses that Joseph is Lord over Egypt. He even arranges a marriage into a powerful priestly family. The priest of On, his daughter Potiphera, interesting name. And she bears him two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. When you look at Joseph by the, at the end of this chapter, chapter 41, you see how he's gone from rags from incredible difficulty, perhaps from the worst thing he could possibly imagine, to now 
He's a success. He has all the trappings of success, all the power he could want. It's an amazing story, this rags to riches story. But how does it happen? I mean, why? Why does Joseph go from rags to riches? Why does he go from the outhouse to the penthouse, from prison to being prime minister? Why does it happen? Is it, is it because of his own brilliance? Is he able to put out his resume and show all of his achievements? You know, all the different societies he belonged to, all the different experiences he had, his fabulous GPA. Is he able to put that out there? Or is he able to work his networking? And, and that's the reason why uh, Pharaoh ultimately said, oh, you've got so many great friends. You know, sure, I'm going to elevate you to being prime minister. Was it because of his own natural brilliance and ability? So that Pharaoh looked at him and said, you're an up-and-comer. I'm going to put you in this spot on the fast track to being prime minister. No, of course not. It wasn't anything in Joseph that caused him to move from rags to riches. No, it was God's work. In the same way that God was with him as things were going from bad to worse, so God was with him as things went from rags to riches. Which reminds us then that the key to this section of Genesis and indeed to the entire story of the Bible is the fact that, that God is sovereign. He is the great king. He is the one who's ruling over this entire situation with Joseph. Everything that's happened to him is according to his own purpose and unfolding according to his own plan. Now, that means then that God was governing all his creatures and all their actions in the various events that led Joseph from prison to being prime minister. He was the one who was proposing and disposing all things according to his will so that he might gain glory for himself. But listen... That means then if God was sovereign in this Minotaurk rise, he was also sovereign when things were going from bad to worse, wasn't he? If God was governing all the events that happened as Joseph knew blessing, he also was orchestrating all the events as Joseph knew difficulty. Here in IPC, we love to talk about the sovereignty of God. We love having a big God. But I wonder if sometimes we might be tempted to, to, talk, to run to our big God, our sovereign God, in one set of circumstances, but not in the other. Perhaps for you, when things are going from bad to worse, it's easy to run to God and to call out to him and say, Oh God, things are really hard right now. I need you to intervene. I'm asking you to, to enter in, to deal with the situation. But when things start going well, not so much. For others of us, when things are going well and we know some measure of success, it's, it becomes easier for us to walk with God. It's easier to walk in the sunshine than in the thunderstorm, isn't it? But when things are difficult, that's when we begin questioning God. The God has blessed us along the way and whom we've expressed gratitude to. When he brings challenges into our lives, then it becomes really hard. But what Joseph's story wants us to see is that our God is sovereign both when things go from bad to worse and when we go from rags to riches. He's with us. He's for us. He's in us in both sets of circumstances. This sovereign God is the one who's active in your life, and he is the source of every blessing. That's certainly the case for Joseph, though it's not as explicit as in chapters 39 and 40, where over and again we heard, uh, Moses write, uh, God was with him, God blessed him, and so forth. Still, it's clear from Genesis 41 
that God is the one who's active and is the source of all of this. Look at chapter 41, verse 16, when Joseph says to Pharaoh, it's not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Again, in verse 25, the dreams of Pharaoh 1, God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. Again, in verse 28, uh, it is, as I said to Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he's about to do. Again, in verse 32, and the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will surely, shortly bring it to pass. Again, in verse 38, even Pharaoh says, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Since God has shown you all of this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. Even when Joseph has children, in chapter 41, verse 51, Joseph called the name of his firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Do you see it? Joseph takes no credit for his wisdom, for the interpretation of the dreams, for his elevation to being prime minister, even for the children that he has. He takes credit for none of it. He recognizes that this God who has been sovereign, who has ruled and overruled in all of his life, as things were going from bad to worse, and as he was going from rags to riches, is the one who's been intervening all along the way to get him to this place, to get him to this spot. It'd be tempting, wouldn't it, in a time of prosperity for, for Joseph to claim success or to forget God's gracious hand. But he doesn't. He doesn't. From first to last, he recognizes God is at work. God is with me. It's God's grace, after all. God's favor from beginning to end. Friends, surely that's a word for us. I mean, for you and me, the temptation that you and I face is ultimately that we might, in times of prosperity, take credit for the blessings that that we have received as though somehow we had something to do with it and we would forget the hand of our sovereign God who is in fact blessing us and providing for us, giving us this day our daily bread. Moses himself, as he's writing in, in Genesis 41, perhaps he's already reflecting on some of these things and the temptation that, would that would, uh, Israel would be facing as they make to the promised land. We, we know that he warns them in Deuteronomy chapter 8, along this very line, in Deuteronomy 8, verse 11, he says, Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply, your silver and gold is multiplied, all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up, and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you and to do you good in the end. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. That was Israel's temptation. That as they went from rags to riches, as they went from prison in Egypt to prosperity in the promised land, that they might somehow take what God had given them and say, look at what I've done. Look at what I've done. 
And friends, if that was Israel's temptation, isn't it ours? I mean, how often we fall into pride and self-pity. Pride because we somehow think that, that we, our own hands, have gained this for us. Self-pity, which is simply the opposite side of pride. Why don't others notice what I've done? Why don't they, others praise me for what I have done? And as we fall into pride, into self-pity, we, we come to believe that our gifts and graces, our success and our prosperity, our ability and opportunities are because we did it. Friend, you didn't build that. God did. God was the one working all along the way. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, what do you have that you did not receive? What do you have that you didn't receive from the hand of God? His grace, his favor, undeserved, uncoerced. That's what the sovereign God is telling us this morning, warning us, perhaps. The God who is with us as things are going from bad to worse, yes, he's worth us as we go from rags to riches. But there's one more thing he wants us to see here, I think. Namely, there's a pattern here. Surely you noticed how Joseph functions in chapters 39, 40, and 41 as a type of Jesus Christ. After all, he was the favored son of a powerful man who had been given authority to rule over his brothers. And he came to his brothers and they did not receive him. And in fact, he took upon himself, unwillingly to be sure, the form of a slave. And he was ultimately thrown into a pit. He was there with men who deserved their punishment. Ultimately, one man was executed, the other man set free. But out of that pit of humiliation, uh, he was ultimately rescued. He's lifted up, lifted up to glory, seated at the right hand of the king on high, ruling over all the nations who come to Egypt. That's Joseph's story. And Joseph's story serves as a pattern, as a type of Jesus Christ. Because when you think of Jesus Christ, who is he? What did he do? He left his father's right hand. The Lord of glory himself took upon himself the form of a servant. He didn't grasp glory, but he let it go. He became a slave. He dwelt among men and became obedient even to death, the death of a cross. And on his right and left hand, there were two men who deserved the punishment they were getting. One certainly died and went to hell. But the other man lived forever. This day you will be with me in paradise. And he was placed into the pit, placed into the grave. But ultimately he was drawn out. Because the Father delighted in him. He was exalted in the resurrection, exalted in the ascension, and now Jesus is sat down at the right hand of the Father Almighty. And yes, from there he will come to, to judge the living and the dead, but presently he rules over all things for his church. Don't you see it? Don't you see this pattern, this type that Joseph is that's realized in Jesus Christ? And yet Jesus, too, is a pattern. Jesus is a pattern for you and me because, friends, to live the Christian life is to live in this pattern of humiliation and exaltation. What did Jesus say? If any man come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. It was Dietrich Bonhoeffer who said when Jesus calls a man, he, he bids him to come and die. And the Christian life is ultimately a series of steps of humiliation as we, as we are humbled by our God through suffering and difficulty and all the rest. And yet, what else did Jesus say? If any man lose his life for my sake, for the gospel's sake, he will save it. More shall be given to him in the regeneration, 30, 60, 100 fold. What is that but exaltation? 
the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2, what was it that he said? You have this mind in you, which is already yours in Christ Jesus. So value others more than yourself. Look at others in humility more than yourselves. Value the interests of others more than yourselves. Why? Because the Christian life is a pattern of humiliation and exaltation. Even the Apostle James in James chapter 5 says, Humble yourself before the Lord. What is that? Humiliation. And God will raise you up. Exaltation. Friends, that is the, the pattern of the Christian life. The pattern you and I live into is going from bad to worse and rags to riches. Humiliation and exaltation. Which means then, as we follow after Jesus, we do so recognizing that in our difficult times, in our sorrows and sadness, in our affliction and opposition and our persecution, it's not simply others doing this. God is working out his salvation in your life. But we also know that suffering and sadness and sorrow and even death is not the last word. It's not the last word. Resurrection's the last word. And there's coming a day, my friend, when the trumpet shall sound and the voice of the archangel shall be heard and the dead in Christ shall rise. You will rise and body and soul will be put back together again and you will have bodies made new and a world made new where you will enjoy Christ forever. See him face to face and know your joys completely because there in glory in Emmanuel's land, he is without a veil seen. That is your life. That's the pattern of your life. And all through it all, God is with you. He's for you. Indeed, by the Spirit, he's in you. As you go from rags to riches, excuse me, as you go from bad to worse, and as you go from rags to riches. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, you who are the fount of every blessing, we do pray that you remind us over and again that you are the one who is at work in our lives. Whether things are going from bad to worse or whether we're knowing some measure of prosperity, the, crown, the cross must come before the crown. And so, Lord, please help us to look to you moment by moment, recognizing you are the one who is active in our lives. You're governing all your creatures and all their actions, which means you're governing us. Do your work in our hearts and lives, we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.